This is Professor Alexander Bellamy, Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Queensland, speaking in Oxford for Oxpeace on Friday the 2nd of June 2017 on the topic, How Can World Peace Be Organised? Thanks, Isabel, and thanks, Liz, and thanks, everyone, for coming. I know it's um, Friday at 5 o'clock. Is, is probably not the most appealing time to come and, uh, and hear someone uh, blathering on, but there is wine provided, and it's, it's a particular innovation that you provide wine to the speaker. Maybe that's because of the nature of the topic. You, you think um, maybe the speaker requires some alcoholic assistance as he's going to try and make an argument that world peace is possible. Um, and it's, so this is um, the last leg of, of, of a two-week tour and circumnavigation that I've been doing. So I did a week in New York where I've been working on, on policy issues. And this is the end of a second week um, in, in the UK. And my day job, as Liz mentioned, is running the Asia-Pacific Centre for the Responsibility to Protect. So I'm only a part-time academic. And that centre is a partnership between the University of Queensland and Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And its mandate is very much geared towards supporting the policy development of RTP and the prevention of atrocity crimes, primarily in the Asia-Pacific, um, but also further afield as well. And as I was mentioning yesterday and earlier today, I also do some, some work with the United Nations. So a lot of what I do um, these days and have done for the last 10 years is, is very much in the weeds, policy-focused, mired in the detail. And that's what I've been mainly talking about these last two weeks, I've given sort of seven or eight different talks, all on you know, separate topic, topics. I should learn not to do that and just give the same talk over and over again. That would be better. Um, but this talk tonight is, is about my, my secret passion and my, my, my hidden vice, which is an interest in world peace. And um, when I'm not doing the day job and when you know, everyone in the house is tucked up quietly in bed, I pull out some books and do some reading around the subject of world peace. Initially, I... I was wanting to write a history of the idea of world peace, and that's the decade-long mega-project. When I pitched it to my publisher, he described it as, quote, bonkersly ambitious. <laughs> I pitched a book so far of 44 chapters in length, of uh, which I've finished one chapter, so at this rate, I should get it finished by the time I'm about 95, so it's a holdout for that one. Uh, but my dean would, of course, sack me if I didn't publish anything between now and when I'm 95, so I had to do a few other things along the way. And this is one of them, which is taking an argument from that long literature of history of world peace uh, about, well, is world peace possible, and trying to do some thinking about um, the possibility of world peace and how it might be uh, achieved. So this is the bones of what will become a, a short little book that hopefully will be published in such a format that people might actually be able to afford to buy it, and is intended as a provocation to start a discussion, because... My, my ambition for the next 10 years is actually to put thinking about peace on the same footing as thinking about war and strategy and other things in international relations. Is to put forward the idea that actually theories and, and schemes for world peace have just as rich a heritage as do theories and schemes about war. And this is a heritage that we barely ever teach our students. They're lucky if they get a bit of cant. What, they often don't understand is that Kant was the last of about a dozen key thinkers to think about schemes for world peace, and then of course there were many other subsequent to that. So part of the rationale is, is for me is recognition that what my day job is, focused on R2P, is basically a band-aid. R2P is a band-aid, it's not a, a long-term solution to the problem of armed conflict and suffering in war. And this point was recognised in 2015 by a whole range of UN system-wide reviews. So in that year, the UN did system-wide reviews on its peace-building architecture, on peacekeeping, and on women, peace, and security. And these were different panels, backed by different secretariats, coming from different agendas. Yet what was striking is that each of them came to the same overall conclusion, which was that to advance any of these agendas, the UN and the international community more broadly, um, needs to focus on the the old issue of peace and conflict prevention, and that needs to become the central focus. Because only if you succeed there can you succeed in moving forward all these other, um, all these other agendas. 
But of course, these days, um, the very idea of world peace raises uh, something of a smile, or a smirk, or a downright incredulity. When you, when you say, I'm working on world peace, people kind of laugh. They, uh, they raise their eyes to the heavens and go, oh, well, good luck with that. Even, um, Susan Sontag wrote a few years ago that not even pacifists believe in world peace anymore. Um, the, the last president of the United States, uh, Barack Obama, during his Nobel um, speech said, well, world peace is something we can't even aspire to anymore. The most we can aspire to are just wars, and we should use just war thing. And of course, in sharp contrast to a speech that JFK once gave, where he said, actually, our aspiration ought to be world peace. So taking that incredulity as my challenge, what I'm going to try and do today is outline um, the argument that world peace is possible. Now, two quick conceptual riders on that. Firstly, I'm not arguing that it's likely or inevitable or easy to achieve. I'm arguing that it's possible. Um, secondly, I'm the, the definition of world peace that I'm operating with is a narrow definition of world peace for reasons that will become clear later. It's a definition of world peace um, in terms of the absence of um, organized armed conflict, whether interstate or within state. So I'm operating with a narrow conception of peace, not a broader conception of positive peace, they're recognizing that the two are separate, are, not separate, are um, inter interlinked. And it's not just me that's been sort of suggesting that world peace might be possible. In fact, all sorts of interesting people have said the same thing, only we've often not paid attention to them. So most of you will know the famous military historian John Keegan. He ends his magisterial book on the history of war, which was published in 1994, with the argument that war may be ceasing to commend itself to human beings, that war may be going out of fashion because it's actually getting more difficult to translate military success into political victory, and therefore the rational costs of war um, um, are rising and the, um, the goods that war can de deliver are declining. And Keegan made the argument that if, it would, if Clausewitz were right that war really was merely the rational continuation of policy by other means, it would have already been abolished because, in fact, war is not very useful anymore at um, achieving policy goals. But Keegan also observes that in practice, when matters of war and peace come to the table, rationality flies out of the window and emotions and passions take over. Also, I bought this book earlier today, just down the road, and um, I noticed, uh, so David Armitage, an excellent uh, political theorist, written a new book on civil wars, and then he says, makes the point again, Immanuel Kant argued that world peace was uh, no empty idea and a task that can be gradually solved. And for Armitage, she says that the, the problem of interstate war has largely uh, been addressed. The, the frequency of interstate war is now incredibly low. We no longer see major wars between um, um, major powers. And Armitage argues we're unlikely to do so in the future. Today, obviously, the problem is one of civil war. And on civil war, he says that civil wars are themselves not inevitable. And again, I'll just read out a little quote. The historical treatment of civil wars reveals the contingency of the phenomena, contradicting those who claim its permanence and durability. So his aim is to show that civil war is something that has arisen out of societies, backed by certain ideologies and ideas, and as such is susceptible to social change and new sets of ideas. Now, where this argument fits in, in global politics is, is precisely there, that up to 2010-2011, the world was making pretty good progress on reducing the incidence of armed conflict, both interstate armed conflict and civil wars. You know, we had a series of books talking about, you know, we were winning the war on war, Stephen Pinker's uh, talk about the unleashing the better angels of our nature, things seem to be going quite well, but of course, since then, things have been moving in the opposite direction. And what I want to suggest is that we got quite close and that unless we consciously take steps to try to re-grasp world peace, we're in danger of losing what could be a, a once in a generation or once in 10 generations opportunity to build a more peaceful world. And I get this sense when I'm, when I'm not smiling, I worry that we're confronting a, something like a global 1913. 1913 is an interesting year. Because on the one hand, we had uh, the peace movement on the march like never before. There were peace societies 
num uh, with members numbering in the tens of thousands in every major industrialized country. Uh, international humanitarian law was being developed, so too were, were, were the laws and rules of war. Technology was advancing, trade was advancing, you could move around Europe without a passport. There was a sense that um, industrialization and progress was having, having an effect. But at the same time, there were these dark forces that, of course, pushed us from the global 1913 to the tragedy of 1940. And I get a sense that we're in a similar position today. On the one hand, I could spend the next six hours talking about all the things that have been achieved and all the things that are better today in this field of, of, of peace and security. On the other hand, um, there is a sense of, of looming danger and a sense that the forces of, of, of hatred, of fear, of um, xenophobia and racism are on the march so that we're, it, world politics could go in, in one of two directions. Now, a big chunk of the talk that I'm not going to go through today is making the argument, yeah, that was it, that there have been lo lots of thinking about world peace. You go all the way back to the um, dawn of human civilization and the first thinking about politics and world politics, you will find proposals for world peace. So amongst the ancient Greeks, you've got a number of different sets of proposals about how Greek city-states could organize themselves more peacefully. Often you find that um, upticks in thinking about peace reflect upticks in practices of war. So the Peloponnesian War in Greece gave rise to a whole series of new theories about greater peacefulness, both within Greek city-states and between them, but also between Greek and Persia. Similarly, in China, the Warring States period gave rise to the now famous schools of philosophy, Chinese schools of philosophy, the Maoists, the Confucians, the Taoists, and the others, all of whom have particular conceptions and theories about how peace ought to be pursued and managed. And you can trace the history that goes right right through the imperial peace of, of, of Rome. There are um, particular theories and, and, and approaches attached to other moral traditions through the Middle Ages up to the 16th century where we start to see the first systematic theories of peace. So Kant was about the 14th theorist to write a treatise called something like Perpetual Peace or On World Peace. It was um, a kind of a you hadn't made it as a political theorist until you'd offered your scheme for world peace during that, that period. And then up into the 19th century, obviously, um, later thinkers did, did too. And we started then to see the evolution of international law, of peace activism, and then, of course, the League of Nations and the United Nations, and here we are today. But the point I want to get over is that thinking about world peace isn't new. It used to be, and for hundreds of years was, a core um, function of scholarly thinking and a core thing that scholars debated and argued about. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to do with this project is actually put it back on the map in the same way so that peace is seen as something that is uh, an important scholarly activity and ideas about how we achieve world peace, the modalities of world peace and the pros and cons of different approaches are debated and discussed in a way that we're not doing today. So that said, the next bit is, the question is, why do we fail? If there is all these masses of literature and all these different schemes, why have all of them failed? And the most obvious response is, maybe it is that we humans are just genetically disposed to violence. That is, there is something inbuilt in as we're innately aggressive. So basically the problem is, all of these different schemas are rubbing up against human nature itself. So they're pretty much wasting their time because ultimately, um, Humans are hardwired for war. And over the last sort of 20 or 30 years, there has been a mass of literature from, from biology, from social psychology, from history, even from international relations, making this argument. And dozens of different explanations for how this could be. But there is no shortage of books in the two shops down the road making the argument that the problem is that humans are just hardwired for violence. So you've got this sort of biological argument. Um, people like um, Pedro Guglieri, who used to be the curator of the Anthropology Museum at Harvard, he argues that in fact humans evolved as warlike animals. And in fact, we inherited our aggressive instincts from chimps. And so we were, as we evolved, we 
prey evolved and we were already warlike and aggressive creatures. A more common line of argument is to say, well, maybe we didn't, we, we didn't evolve already as warlike creatures, but maybe that evolved early in our human experience. So humans from the earliest days learned that if they clubbed together and fought each other, they could get access to resources, to better meat to eat, to women for, for mating. And so this aggressive instinct was evolved into us and born of necessity, and eventually that gives rise to war between humans. And that was kind of thinking, um, you know, which relates strongly with, with sort of theological um, accounts, is that all that humans are just inherently evil. So, you know, Genesis talks of the inclination of man's heart being evil from childhood. And there's a strand of thinking, not just in theological thinking, but also in some liberal accounts of, of the social contract that says, well, the problem is that people are just innately evil and have to be controlled and tamed by the state. And of course, from that, we get to our dear friend Thomas Hobbes and his state of nature. The idea that without a state, humans live in a a context of perpetual competition with one another for bare survival, and therefore life is nasty, brutish, and short. Or as it said in a, uh, a, a version that was translated for the Nigerian government on independence, uh, life in a state of nature was nasty British and short. <laughs> um, so in this line of thinking, you, you see the, the fairly perverse argument for those of you that know more about political theory than I do, but Hobbes's description of the state of nature is actually a historical description. That is what life was like before the state. In terms of the evidence, let's say, some people say, well, you know, Hobbes was actually describing a, an actual historical condition. Um, Raymond Dart, a guy who lived just down the road from where I now live in Tawong, Queensland, was the first person to find one of the missing links between chimps and Australopithecus. He discovered that Australopithecus had its uh, skull crushed, decided that this meant that Australopithecus must have been some sort of murdering, um, Australopithecus killing beast, and developed all these kind of interesting lurid theories about Australopithecus being a kind of a mass killer, and therefore we, we got those instincts from Australopithecus. It later translated, it later turned out that the markings on its skull were actually consistent with the tooth marks of a saber-toothed tiger. So more likely that Australopithecus came um, it's kind of a crop, cropper to a saber-toothed tiger. Then, of course, we've got Jane Goodall and her observations of um, a war between chimpanzees, which, of course, fueled the argument that, well, we, you know, evolved as innately warlike from chimps. Another theory is a, a book called Demonic Males. that say, well, it's not all chimps and humans that's the problem. It's just males. And uh, male chimps learn to club together in order to get access to resources, and this was passed down. And so war is basically just a continuation of males learning to club together to be, to be aggressive, something that you know, is intuitively plausible for anyone who's out in a ten, town centre after 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, perhaps. Um, so this demonic males theory. Then you've got people like Conrad Lorenz, who talks about the animal aggression that humans have. Um, and arguments about that this means that aggression and warlike, our warlike nature is, is written into evolution and natural selection. So the argument goes, Natural selection selects for aggression because the more aggressive males get access to more mates, more resources, and therefore those genetic dispositions um, get bred in more. And so evolution selects for war. And you'll find that argument in some of the literature. There's also an argument that reminds us of the saber-toothed tiger fact and says, well, early humans had to be hunters, therefore they had to develop an aggressive and violent instinct to feed themselves. <coughs> Um, therefore, that's where it comes from. Another set of arguments says, no, 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 it wasn't the fact that they were hunters that created the aggressive instinct, it was the fact that they were prey that created the aggressive instinct. So early humans were scared of saber-toothed tigers, and so developed this deep consciousness, subconscious aggressiveness that apparently we still have today, according to this, this theory. Then, of course, Sigmund Freud argued that humans have a destructive, um, um, destructive instinct um, that goes beyond rationality and pushes us to do things um, that are self-destructive. Now, the evidence supporting this, these sorts of theories point to biology. They also point to the archaeological record and say, well, there's archaeology of early warfare. And also they use anthropology and say, well, if we look at hunter-gatherer societies today, we see that lots of these are violent. Now, you won't be surprised to hear, as 
um, my project goes on for more than just this first section that I don't find these arguments persuasive and I've got three sets of reasons. The first I've called categorical, only because that sounds more academic and intellectual than miscellaneous. <laughs> it could have been called miscellaneous. Um, the first of these categorical problems is that Thomas Hobbes himself wasn't a Hobbesian in the way understood by this literature. So Hobbes wasn't arguing uh, that humans are evil, he was arguing that they were rational. The behaviour that Hobbes said would inhere in the state of nature without a state was a response to the context. And Hobbes goes on in Leviathan to say, you change the context, create a state, and you will change human behaviour. So humans are responding to the conditions not being driven by um, you know, inevitable or innate behaviours. So, because the context can be escaped, so too can the behaviours. Another argument um, which came from the uh, Enlightenment thinker Vico pointed across the hole in the Hobbesian argument. Hobbes argued that humans inhabited this state of nature, found it intolerable, and so developed a social contract with the state where they gave up some of their rights in return for security from the state. But Vico argued that this couldn't possibly be true because if Hobbes was right about the state of nature, those humans in that state of nature could never have cooperated sufficiently to unite and make a state because they'd be too suspicious of each other, too aggressive towards each other. Which gets me to a, an, another critique of this line of thinking which is more recent from A.C. Grayling. And Grayling points out that war isn't actually an inherently aggressive pastime. Actually, cooperation in war is more important than individual aggression because that's of course what di differentiates war from individual level violence. And actually war requires a high level of other regarding behaviour, requires soldiers to voluntarily put themselves in harm's way for an abstract ideal or an abstract community, and of course requires high levels of cooperation between and within military units. If if the argument was right that we were all innately aggressive and self-interested, well, you'd never get sufficient levels of cooperation um, to be able to fight a war, Grayling points out. Another set of arguments says that actually the, the whole, um, the whole chim chimpanzee analogy breaks down fairly quickly. And the first reason it breaks down fairly quickly is that chimpanzees aren't our only ancestor at the same, the same level. There, there is another primate called the bonobos, to whom we are equally um, related and the bonobos, far from being aggressive, are in fact anything but aggressive. In fact, um, promiscuous is how you would describe the bonobos. So they settle their conflicts with extraordinary amounts of sex, um, both um, between the, the two genders and within individual genders, and violence is almost entirely unheard of in the bonobos. And we are as evolved from bonobos as we are from chimps. So we're a little bit of, we're as much. Um, peace-loving bonobos as we are aggressive chimps. The other issue is, it, it's argued, well, you, you, can't under, you can't say that because chimps are violent today, that tells us something about evolution into humans, because chimps, like humans, have had five million years of evolution since that point. So that even if chimps today are violent and engage in, in, in war-like behaviour, it doesn't necessarily mean that they did so five million years ago when the first offshoot towards Homo sapiens happened. And the other argument around chimps is that although there was you know, a big write-up about these warlike and aggressive chimps, particularly around the time when, when Goodall was making those first observations, actually now that we've got lots of observations from different chimp colonies, it turns out that that sort of organised violence is incredibly rare amongst chimpanzees. The final set of categorical problems goes to the issue of evolution and from Darwin himself. And Darwin made the point that of course humans are different to other animals in that we have uh, extraordinarily greater brain capacity. And we have this capacity to learn, this capacity to learn through generations. And he argued that at that point where learning starts to kick in, so human cooperation takes off, and it's not long before the success of a group is driven not by the individual strengths of its members, but by the capacity of the group to cooperate. So the groups that were most effective are the groups that cooperate the most. So Darwin actually argued that at a certain point in human evolution, selection would select not for aggressiveness, but actually for cooperation. Second set of issues are archaeological, and I'm taking far too long, so I'll skip through this quickly, just to say, 
Um, there is actually very little archaeological evidence of warfare before around 10,000 BCE. Um, at that point, from that point on, there's lots of evidence from before 10,000, very little to no evidence. And the same pattern is true in rock art as well. And the third is from anthropology. And here the argument is, sure, we can look at hunter-gatherer societies today and see that some are violent, but we can also look at hunter-gatherer societies today and see that some are peaceful. Um, the key distinction seems to be the level of social complexity within those hunter-gatherer societies. So those um, that exhibit greater violence tend to be the more complex hunter-gatherer societies. So those that have adopted some sedentary behaviours, like fixed settlements, uh, fixed assets and resources, those that uh, are less complex tend to be less peaceful. Uh, sorry, tend to be more peaceful. And the thinking, the thinking is that the less complex societies don't have sufficiently strong intra-group bonds to, to make individual conflicts escalate into group conflicts. Because they are less bonded together, if two individuals have a, a conflict with each other, that conflict will tend to stay at the level of individual conflict. Yet, where societies are more closely bonded and have um, more complex relationships, there the tendency is for individual conflicts to give rise then up to group level conflict. The other interesting thing that I found looking from the anthropological literature is that if you accept the idea that I'm going to propose that actually war and society co-evolve, so humans didn't emerge as warlike, but war evolves as societies change and evolve, the other interesting thing that happens in that process is that peace emerges as well. So that from the very beginning of war as a social phenomenon, so too human societies develop all sorts of different ways of avoiding war and establishing peace. So again, the anthropological literature gives us literally dozens of different approaches by which simple hunter-gatherer societies have, have um, developed processes for peace such as mediation, proto-judicial settlements, ritualized battles, um, peace treaties, shared norms around territory, exchange and compensation, and sometimes limited sanctioned violence as well. So my working theory is that humans have an aggressive instinct, we can't deny that, but they also have uh, empathetic and compassionate and cooperative instincts, and neither of these individual level instincts can explain group level phenomena. We need group level explanations for that. And I think war and peace then co-evolved with society and it was certain conditions, certain types of social and political organisation that give rise to and sustain war. And the other interesting thing when you look at some of the earliest civilizations is that some of them did choose paths um, that avoided war. So there remains a, a big controversy about the Minoans. Some say very peaceful society, others say, well, actually, they had lots of weapons. Um, clearly, this wasn't a pacifist society. This was a society that had the capacity to wage defensive war. But what's still interesting about the Minoans is that you have an advanced, sophisticated society, you know, a society with flushing toilets and grand palaces, that lived alongside the ancient Egyptians and the Hittites, two societies that left extensive written historical records, yet neither of those records mention any wars with the Minoans. And we know the Minoans had trading posts across the Eastern Aegean, so it's sort of interesting. Um, another one uh, that I'm still learning about, but it's really, are the Phoenicians. So here you have a civilization that lived at the time in one of the most violent parts of the world, with lots of large empires right next door, yet they never had an army. The Phoenicians never had an army. Sometimes they had to make deals with local powers. So we know um, during the Greek War with Persia, the Phoenicians built ships to, to give to the Greeks because they were worried about the Persians. But the Phoenicians didn't contribute soldiers and didn't have an army. Yet they survived for about a thousand years using basically trade, diplomacy, wiles, and some um, cunning cultural traits such as um, actually not being too out there in, 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 in putting forward their Phoenician culture. This is one of the reasons why we know so little about them, because they tried always to blend in with whoever the dominant powers at the time were, so that they could get along with them. And then in, in India, we have the Indus civilization, another 
ancient and highly developed civilization, again, one that had flushing toilets, there seems to be a thing between flushing toilets and peaceful civilizations, but there's no evidence whatsoever that this civilization um, had wars. No, no art with soldiers, um, no weapons that seemed capable of being used in, in battle, no written records of, of war, and this again was a civilization that existed over several hundreds of years. So it does seem that there were, from the outset, also possibilities, different ways in which civilizations were able to navigate. And these were civilizations that weren't just sort of flash in the pan, we're talking hundreds of years. So, for the main part, the people in those civilizations would not have known or experienced warfare, which is sort of interesting. So, what I want to argue then is, so war isn't an innate part of the human condition, but is made possible by particular types of social organization and particular sets of social conditions. And all understanding those particular types, those ideas, forces, and conditions that give rise to war is therefore central to understanding um, world peace. The other thing to note is that if you look at the span of human history, most societies are peaceful most of the time. It's just that they're not all peaceful at the same time. So again, you'll see often in literature, people write, will start by saying, humans have always been at war. Um, you know, there are this many years of war, and only in human history have there been 36 years where there's been world peace. Well, that may be true, that at some point, somewhere in the world, somebody is at war, but nonetheless, the ex lived experience for most humans in most parts of the world, over most of history, has been um, uh, conditions of peace, which makes me think then that, there, that it is possible, it's just a case of getting it all lined up at the same time. So why then do I think we fail? I think there are three key things that drive the continuation of war. One is the basic fact of human division. Of course, as humans started to evolve and develop into societies and civilizations, they became divided into groups with different sets of values, interests, languages, and ideologies. And those groups, or sufficient numbers of people within those groups, came to see war as an effective means of getting what they want. Why did this happen? Well, I mean, the, the key driver was that group membership was, of course, and remains fundamental to human flourishing. Human groups in different parts of the world learned to specialize. So a lot of the, the norms, traditions, rituals developed were developed because they proved useful at sustaining life in different sets of social and environmental conditions. And of course, the most successful of the groups, going back to what I said earlier, were those that are most tightly cohered. So those that have strong senses of shared culture, strong shared beliefs, strong shared language. Those are the ones that were able to drive greater cooperation, and those were the groups that therefore succeeded. But of course, with this specialization comes difference. So you have no common understanding of justice or peace between groups. And this is one of what I'm thinking of calling the paradox of peace, which is that the very things that drove peacefulness within societies, those things that bond societies together, are precisely the same things that also drive societies apart. So the closer societies become internally cohered, so much sharper become the differences um, between them. And within this context, of course, war remains the arbiter of last resort. In a context, context where you have societies with different conceptions of justice, different beliefs in their core interests, ultimately organised violence through war becomes the principal way in which they settle their difference. differences. The other issue, and thinking back to all those schemes for world peace is that the problem of human division also creates two issues that inhibit cooperation for peace. One is what's called the collective action problem, which is that states individually won't contribute to the collective good because, well, it's a cost to them and they worry about others doing so too and don't want to contribute if others aren't contributing. And second, another problem of defections, and that is simply that um, if a state or society believes its interests are at stake, it will simply defect from the, the system or the order in order to achieve what it wants. So that's the first thing. 
The second issue that I think we need to be kind of upfront and honest about is that war persists because a sufficient number of people think it helps them achieve what they want at a reasonable cost. Um, and there's no arguing that if you look at the great span of human history, war has often been a useful way of getting what you want. War was central in the creation of the modern state. Wars of aggression helped create empires. Empires helped create immense wealth. Immense wealth that still um, rings down um, to this day. It helped states expand and gain territory. Sometimes, of course, war has been necessary for the common good, whether to end genocide, to wind back aggression, to foster national liberation against empire. So there's this again, duality with war that Nick Mansfield captures nicely when he says that the problem is war kills and saves simultaneously in, in different settings. The other thing is, of course, in this context, we need to understand that peace isn't itself an overarching value that is necessarily considered more important than everything else. In fact, war persists because in many situations, people judge that peace is less important than other things, be that nationalism, be that a cause of national liberation or stopping the genocide or be that some sense of divine command. There are all sorts of other cherished values and ideologies that are considered to be more important um, than war. And so this gets down to the basic problem, or basic issue, because war persists, because ultimately there are enough people prepared to sacrifice themselves for <coughs> these other um, ideals or goods. Some caveats on that one is, though, firstly, we shouldn't overstate this appeal. And again, there's been this sort of literature in the last 10 years pushing back against some of the established sort of peace literature saying, well, you know, actually a lot of soldiers like war. They write in their diaries about how much they're having fun shooting the enemy and how exhilarating it is. Um, that's true. Uh, we need to recognize that that is part of the written experience, but it remains a minority experience. Um, for example, Joanna Burke talks a lot in, in a book that makes this argument a lot about, she uses a lot of examples from the First World War and uses a lot of diaries from the First World War, people saying what a jolly nice time they were having on the trenches. Nevertheless, it remains that the British High Command was so worried about the lack of aggressive spirit amongst frontline soldiers that they had to put in place a whole set of measures to try and instill aggressive spirit. So whilst there may have been some people writing in their diaries about how much they were enjoying the war, it's nevertheless also the case that the High Command had to do a whole set of things because they thought that people weren't being aggressive enough. Nor, I think, from this argument, do we, should we accept the proposition that empire does more harm than good? And we should also recognize that the value attached to war isn't something that's natural, it's something that's socially reproduced. The valorization, the heroization of war is something that is reinforced by government and national policies, by popular culture, by um, you know, all sorts of social forces that give rise to this idea of, of, of war as an inherently good thing to do. And that also always downplays the, the grim realities of war. We all remember the opening scenes of uh, Saving Private Ryan, but even that was, was not an accurate depiction uh, of, of the nature of war. So we need to remember that these things are, 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 are not kind of natural or inevitable. The third big break on peace is the fact that war is contagious. And the basic problem here being warless societies, societies that themselves reject war as a means of policies, can and do have war imposed on them from outside. So when one group starts to adopt warring and raiding as a way of achieving goods, neighbours have a choice. They can fight, they can flight, run away, or they can submit. As, of course, human populations grew, flight became less of an option, and so basically, societies are faced with either fighting or submitting. Um, sometimes, as, as the Phoenician story shows us, deft diplomacy and skillful trade can hold back the tide, but ultimately the Phoenician civilization collapsed because Alexander the Great rode over them. Um, so even, even for the Phoenicians, war ultimately overcame that. And of course we know that war spreads. Um, once one society starts to militarize, that creates what we in international relations call a security dilemma, which creates uncertainty in the mind of neighbors and makes them also want to adopt armaments, and that creates um, tensions and arm races that give rise to armed conflict. 
And this is also a problem that's still with us today. So the contemporary literature on civil wars tells us that wars spread across borders. In fact, one of the key predictors of a country's vulnerability to civil war is the presence of civil wars in neighboring countries because of the transnational flows that give rise to it. So I think that war persists because of those three things. Human division that gives rise to violent conflict, the perception that war can be productive, and the fact that war is contagious. Now quickly some things that aren't in that list, that you might be surprised aren't in that list. One is democracy, and that's not in my list um, because uh, you can have peace without democracy, and also democracy isn't necessarily associated uh, um, um, yeah, with peace, in fact, there's another recent book that argues, in fact, actually, war may have given rise to democracy, in that it was, as states placed ever greater demands on their population, as war became more attritional, so they felt they had to give something back to their populations, which they did in the form of democracy. Another thing that isn't in my list is religion. And religion isn't in my list because it can work and has worked either way. Sometimes it has been a source of division between societies and within societies, but also it's been a source of unity and peace within and between societies. Another one that isn't there is international organization, which is bizarre for someone whose life is spent working on international organization. And I'll talk about it in a minute. International organization is a mainstay of peace proposals and is a part of any schema for world peace, but it's a second order issue. And it's a second order issue because international organization by itself won't deliver you more peace unless you change things at the level of the constituent units, i.e. states and societies. Another thing I don't have is justice. Where's justice in this theory, you may be wondering. Justice is a really difficult one and the relationship between peace and justice is a very difficult one. It's not in my, my list because war happens precisely because humans don't have a common understanding of what justice is or how justice ought to be applied. It is this very fact that gives rise to wars. Most people going to war genuinely believe that theirs is the just cause, that they are on the side of justice. Only mercenaries would think, would think not, and even they would probably rationalise it in terms of the justice of the market or something. So, so justice, or talking about justice, doesn't get us to peace. Instead, we need a concept of peace that can deal with and accommodate different ideas and competitions over justice. And the other thing, the, the other thing that I haven't identified as a specific factor is arms control and disarmament, but that's because it, it is there, but not as its own factor. It's there embedded within the problem of um, the productiveness of war, so the cost of war, and in the problem of contagion. So how long have I got left? All right, I wouldn't have got any time. How am I going? Welcome, what, five minutes? Great. So five minutes for how do we get to world peace? <laughs> First thing is the big kind of, uh, my, 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 my conceptual starting point is that we need to stop seeing world peace as a major utopian project. There's a great book written a few years ago by World War I historian called Jay Winter called Minor Utopias. And it's a book that, that talks about a particular historical moment where people articulated different understandings of human liberation, of human rights, of peace. And what I want to argue is that world peace won't come from the top down, and this is precisely why many of the schemes of the past haven't worked, but rather from the bottom up and through the instantiation of lots of little minor utopias. Now there are four big elements that I'm going to outline in there, but each of these big elements you will see is so large that they will give rise to literally hundreds of different projects for peace. And what I'm going to suggest is that it's the culmination of all of this that gets you to world peace. And, and my belief that it's possible comes from the fact that there are so many regions of the world that have already achieved it. So obviously Western Europe, to a great extent, Latin America. More recently, a lot of East Asia, which has come from a very violent background. So there are parts of the world that have already done this. So what are my four steps? My first step is the establishment and maintenance of what I call everyday peace. So peace within societies. 
And for that, I think there is um, no better alternative, and it's not a perfect alternative, but I think it is the best, to legitimate and effective modern states. So the bedrock of the system that I'm proposing are legitimate and effective modern states. Step two is that we need to establish a global political, legal, economic and technological environment that ensures that war is unproductive and expensive. That raises the costs of war to the point where no one would rationally think that war is a useful or productive way of getting what they want. Step three, and this is the one where I'm, uh, I'm most uncertain about how exactly you go about doing this. We need to adopt measures that mitigate um, the fact of human division, and the fact that human division gives rise to violent conflict by promoting mutually positive transactions across those different communities. And the fourth is that we need to eradicate the contagion of war, and we do that through international organisation. And on that, I think the UN system has done a, about as well as it could do with the current configuration of, of states and orders that, that we have. Sure, there are technical things that need improving and, and, and shaping and developing, but the, the system as is has done a pretty good job and reforms that we would propose without first dealing with those other three would be, um, would be adjusting at the margins. And the UN won't deliver much stronger um, improvements without changes on, the, on, on those three. Just really quickly then on... Um, so I'll skip past the first one because we all know what we mean by, by, by state and legitimate states. But the, the key point is when you look around the world today, most violent conflicts are the cause of disputes around illegitimate governance, illegitimate patterns of, of economic distribution, weak state capacity, lack of basic services. It's these issues around the nature um, and the legitimacy of the state that is driving most conflict today. Obviously, many, many forests have been cut down to print books on what the, what the ideal state is and what, what it should look like. Um, um, we, all, we all know what the, what the key things are there. One thing I would say as part of that though, we also need to pay attention to the foreign policy positions adopted by states as well as their domestic policy positions. So we are looking for foreign policies that support trade, that support globalisation, that abide by international law, that have an internationalist outlook and that are committed to international institutions. Secondly, on, on lifting the costs, there are two key ways. One is um, one is around increasing the opportunity costs associated with war, which is already, of course, being achieved through trade, um, um, through uh, economic engagement, through multinational production lines. Oddly, through the increased cost of armaments, is raising the destructiveness of war and, and actually putting downward pressure on it. But also, we need to reinforce key norms that inhibit the potential to translate military success into political success. So norms that say, Irrespective of how well you do on the battlefield, that's not going to um, affect the final political solution. So, for example, the norm of territorial integrity has had a key, and the anti-colonisation norm, have had key driving effects on the reduction of interstate armed conflict. Sure, Russia may well occupy Crimea, but Russia will never legitimise and legalise its control of Crimea which will increase the economic and political costs in perpetuity. Uh, and there are all sorts of other norms around um, you know, individual culpability for aggressive war. So right now, in the international community has just negotiated the crime of aggression into the International Criminal Court. Only 30 states have signed up, but that's 30 more than I thought would sign up when I first saw the possibility for the crime of aggression in the ICC. And that will, will slowly um, take hold and move forward. Then there's the, what's that the, the emotional side. And we need to understand with, with the emotional and the identity-based side that identities and emotions can work in both ways. They can drive greater conflict, but they can also reach out across borders. And the question is, how do we, within a context of human difference, foster those sorts of interactions and identities that minimise um, the tendency towards 
racism, xenophobia, heightened nationalism, patriotism, and violence. And this is where my thinking is still quite sketchy, and so feedback would be really interesting. I think one thing is reaffirming faith in basic human rights, in particular the basic ideals of human equality, so that although we may have points of difference, those are points of difference argued against a shared understanding of the equal worth and dignity of, of all humans. I think there are, there are classic aspects of the old-fashioned small L liberal agenda around things like you know, the good old um, Erasmus program in, in the UK, the Colombo plan in Australia. The more that you can internationalise education so that you encourage people to, to have multiple identities, to understand multiple identities and to feel comfortable operating across borders helps, um, helps have a dampening effect. Uh, my academic career started um, at a military college and not for nothing do, does military education do a lot of work on what's called defence diplomacy. The whole idea of defence diplomacy is that you bring forward the next generation of military leaders who know personally all their counterparts and their wives and their families and that has a dampening effect because of those interpersonal connections can come into play and be really useful. So thinking about how we, how we promote those sorts of values and dampen the other sorts of identities and values in a way that's not elitist. I think one of the challenges we're confronting now is, is that what we had was the development of a cosmopolitan internationalized elite, people that come to universities and go on Erasmus programs and learn foreign languages, but an ever increased gap between those and, and the broader um, society. And I think both with the rise of Trump and with Brexit here, um, we've seen those, those gaps and divisions come up. So the question is, how do we, how do we bring those values um, to the wider community? And then finally on contagion, as I said, I think this is where, you know, where we're talking to the UN. We're talking about the UN, we're talking about regional security architectures. Here I think the system is about as good as you can get it. Let's say it's not, there are things you can improve and I've built a career over the last 10 years talking about those. But that's not going to change the fundamentals unless we deal with those three other things, the constituent units, raising the costs associated by wars and dealing with um, the emotions and the identity relations that give rise to war. So that's Thank me done. Thank you very much, Alex.